Welcome to the Black Theatre History Podcast, where we seek to celebrate the people, the plays, and the rich stories of the American theatre's African-American history makers. This is KB Sane. Today's episode features a conversation with Gary Anderson that is both an inspiration and a wake-up call. Gary Anderson is the Producing Artistic Director of the Plowshares Theatre Company. A graduate of Wayne State University, Mr. Anderson holds both a bachelor's and a master's degree of fine arts and theatre, specializing in directing. A 2016 Kresge Artist Fellow, Gary Anderson is a noted expert in Black theater. Throughout his career, he has worked with such well-known playwrights as Ron Milner and August Wilson, with producer Woody King Jr., and with actresses Ella Joyce and Stephanie Mills, among others. As a director, Mr. Anderson has worked in Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Atlanta, and Houston, and, of course, Detroit. Mr. Anderson has served on the board of local and national theater organizations, including the Michigan Equity Theater Alliance, Culture Source, Black Theater Network, Theater Communications Group, and the National Conference on African American Theater. Gary Anderson is the author of and researcher behind Black Theater Survey 2016-2017, a report on the health of Black theater in America. I sat down to talk with him in August 2018 at Hattie Lou Theater in Memphis, Tennessee, to discuss his findings and the conclusions he's reached as a result. Awesome. Um, so, Gary, thank you for mm-hmm. sitting down and taking this time. Would you just articulate the project that you've been working on? Two years ago, I, I was able to receive a Kresge Artist Fellowship, done, and so it meant that I didn't have to work a regular day job to keep myself employed. I had resources. And one of the things that had been challenging me was time to focus on some of the problems that plowshares had gone through um, with the economic downturn in the uh, like 2006, seven, eight, yep, yep. and so we were we we were trying to reel with that and address it, so that we could come out of it in a much stronger position. So this originally began with me trying to find best practices around the country, look, talking and researching other black theaters in other parts of the country, um, so that I could build a business plan for plowshares, and so I set up a design to do. Um, trips to several parts of the country. I went to um, New York, Chicago, to LA, I went to Atlanta, Memphis, St. Louis, um, and Portland, Oregon, just to find different regions Mm -hmm. of the country. And I did interviews with the the theater companies there. I also um, built a really substantial list about 70-some-odd African-American theaters and a couple in Canada that um, allowed me to then send them out a survey. So I invited them to participate in a survey I did online that they could just easily fill out um, and answer several questions that connected with their budget, how it was allocated towards, let's say, arts education, play development, Um, what was the makeup of their what was their economic mix? Meaning, like, what is their what are the funding sources that make up the money they as spend? opposed to contributed income? Well, right. So, income. so yeah. yeah, contributed income, foundation income, corporate support, mm-hmm. box office. How much do they spend on arts education programming as part of their budget? Um, how much do they spend on play development as a part of their operational budget? And what and, and also, did they own their own facilities? If not, what other kind of relationship did they have? Mm-hmm. Um, things like that. So I tried to find... So, so in it, what, I, what came back to me 
was some very challenging statistics that gave me I got I got like thirty six percent return on my That's great. yeah it is it is I was really kind of impressed by that so thirty six percent of the people I, I approached responded to the survey so that gave me a, a good strong assessment of the the, the landscape. They were equity, non-equity, and community theaters. Okay. I mean, I'm curious about earned income, because mm-hmm. I know that that's a major disparity among particularly black arts organizations. Mm-hmm. What, what were your findings in that regard? Did you, was, what were the trends that you Well, the trends was that, that earned income made a larger percentage of their, their overall revenue. Okay. And in fact, because earned income was so significant, in the mix, in some cases, between 38, 42%, 48% of their, bu- their, their budget, that meant that the shows they put on the stage really had to be seen as money makers. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that we found out when we looked at what, where their funding came from, that most of the theaters, overwhelming number of theaters, had 10% or less of their budget coming from individual giving. We just looked at how much money was being raised from individual giving. And it was uniformly low in comparison to when TCG does the theater facts. And you look at the resources that are being uh, captured by contemporary theaters Mm -hmm. of sequel size. There's usually between 28 to 35% of their budget. So like almost a third of their budget is coming from individual giving. Which gives them a stronger foundation on which to reside. Right. That, in fact, that box office is a smaller percentage. Um, and those were the kind of things that, that, that stuck out to me. And, and after looking at it, I realized that this wasn't just me, for me, building a business plan to serve my needs, that it really was an opportunity for us to have a clear assessment of the challenges that African-American theaters work under so that we could address the real systemic issues because it seemed as if, for the most part across the country, there has been some plateauing in regards to the growth of these organizations. Yep. And it's occurred roughly in the, in the latter part of the 20th century and definitely in the first mm-hmm. part of this, of this century. And you see, and there, there are some interesting trends that have occurred that I think have an impact on that. Well, including federal funding and where the NEA is focused on the energies. Funding. And when you look at that change from the 80s into the turn of the century, right. um, you see a real breakup. I, I'm curious if you saw a correlation in um, this increased percentage of earned income mm-hmm. needs. Is that directly related in any way uh, to what you found in terms of new development of works? Yeah, new development went down. Because in fact, in fact, in many cases, right, exactly. So new development went down. In fact, in many cases, it was zeroed out. And so what you're doing is you're doing plays that have already been established that have some recognition, that have some publicity that you can then promote to an audience here. And you and and also, we found that in a number of cases, the most financially solvent black theaters in the country are those that primarily do musicals. Mm as opposed to doing more straight plays that are dramatic and, and challenge an audience mm-hmm. in regards to addressing issues that are, are a, a part of the human experience. Yeah. And that directly speaks to this ongoing problem that we have, right. that our black artist voices are being developed in predominantly white institutions. That, is, that, that was also a definite case, and I think that, that, that got started 
roughly around 1991, mm-hmm. when um, the Lila Wallace Reader's Digest Fund created their $25 million participant. Uh, arts cultural participation project okay. where they funded some 26 organizations most of them predominantly white institutions but a handful of them were african-american and an even small portion hispanic and asian theaters and of the many of them st louis black rep mm-hmm. penumbra crossroads are have seemed to be in weaker circumstances than they were when they were originally mm-hmm. approached in large part because the dollars that went to the predominantly white institutions to diversify boards, staff, um, programming, they started doing that. And, and it's, it, it's odd that it happens in the early 90s because in the, in the late 80s is when August Wilson comes aboard. And Lloyd Richards being associated with a lot of these lords he begins using them as the out-of-town tryouts for all. In fact, he creates a model that is replicated today with other writers. Mm -hmm. So, for example, he works with the Goodman, the Arena Stage, or or the Kennedy Center, um, the Huntington Theater, Mm -hmm. and and they do the readings of these plays. What happens is is that you then cultivate an... uh, an appreciation amongst their predominantly white audiences for works that are that are said to be coming from the African American experience, so that pro- that gives them a ease by which that they can begin cultivating other potential writers, right. and so they do that, and so and so today, if you look at Broadway, and all the plays that have been on there by black author writers, mm-hmm. ex- with the exception of two, all of the plays have come from white institutions, mm-hmm. and in fact. The two that had early development, uh, Stickfly, which originally started at Congo Square in Chicago, or Jitney, which originally started at Penumbra and then got further development at Crossroads mm-hmm. in the 90s. When those shows got to Broadway, those black theaters were not associated in any way in regards to the producing or benefiting in, in, for any net profits or even in the promotion. And so the recognition mm. that the recognition that somebody like Woody King Jr. in a new federal theater got when For Color Girls came to Broadway right. or when Spunk from Crossroads came to the public right. or when Soldier's Play from, from the Negro Ensemble went to Broadway, right. that no longer was existing for these institutions. And so it was as if they were, were even important in the process. And so the other works, works by Lynn Nottage, Susan Laurie Parks, uh, Katori Hall, and they're all being developed at Signature and Arena, right? right. And, mm-hmm. and that to itself is also a part of what I discovered is that in the African American theater there have been a couple of fault lines, things that we have created for ourselves. And one of them, well, specifically, there's no other way to put it. There's a certain level of misogyny that exists mm-hmm. in the organizations and how they appropriate. When, when they were developing works on their own, most of the works were developed b- about black men, written primarily by black men. Mm-hmm. And so women, black women, didn't really have a voice in that. There were exceptions to that rule, but for the most part, you still have the majority of the work coming from only one gender. That's a vulnerability. And these now these predominantly white institutions, which have diversity and inclusion money coming from foundations... Yeah. They see that as a fault line, and guess who they end up developing? Right. And so what you see is on Broadway, the, the fruits of, that, of those actions, with the exception of 
August Wilson and Brandon Jacob Jenkins, yes. there is there are no other black men that have been on Broadway in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Which is really and, interesting. And, and with Jenkins, it's, it's Lincoln Center, which is still right. considered part of Broadway. Um, what's interesting to me in that is that we know that black women are the ones who are driving the majority of the fiscal decisions in terms of spending in communities. Right. When you look, when you look and at so the, by not serving right, them, right. that becomes a singular, right. exactly. cyclical intention. So we did. So the black theater did not serve black women and artists. Mm-hmm. Those works are now being developed by white institutions, and the person who makes the cultural decision in the home is a black woman, mm-hmm. more likely than a black man. Mm-hmm. So you are creating an allegiance with another organization as opposed to with an organization that supposedly is devoted to doing work by you. Right, and we're gonna hold for just one second. So, in terms of looking at um, other societal and cultural impacts within communities based on Mm -hmm. what the theaters are doing or vice versa, what else were your, what other things did you find that were, were significant? Well, one of the things I found that had a huge um, impact is the energy that is existing in the younger generation mm-hmm. of, of theater artists from African-American background. Um, 20-somethings, 30-somethings are pro- going primarily to predominantly white institutions mm-hmm. for higher learning. They may get an internship with a predominantly white institution during their career, their academic career. And then when they graduate, they go get a job at a predominantly white institution yeah. if they can. Mm-hmm. Okay, which means that they never touch that expertise that's developed, that energy that's that's developed, never seems to touch the black theaters. And so, if you look at our organizations, the leadership is in its fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties. Right, it's aging out, yeah. and there's no cultivation of a next generation to come along. Yes, we do have some groups that have younger generational talent. Penumbra now has Sarah Bellamy mm-hmm. as opposed to her father, Lou. Yep. Um, so that's, that's, that's an addition. Greg Williams at New Venture. Yes. Again, is, an, is a, Ekendeo at Hattie Lou, mm-hmm. right? That's another Jackie one. Alexander. Jackie Alexander. But the majority of the organizations still are being led by people who are half a century or older. Yeah. And without any kind of credible way of generating new blood into those organizations with the infusion of those artists that come with a much more modern approach or a capability of understanding how to approach an audience. Or using, reaching new or reach, audiences Reaching now. new audience, right, mm-hmm. because they, they are part of that new audience. We find the African-American theaters, not all of them, but a, a large portion of them sluggish in regards mm-hmm. to figuring out in this new environment, how to how communicate to an audience? Since television is still out of the reach financially, and newspapers, which was our primary source of getting information out about, are, is no longer trustworthy or viable because of the challenges it's going through, we have to th- find a new way of approaching audiences to come to experience, to engage, to, to develop a loyalty to theater and black theater particularly. This is a, a question that has come to my mind while we're speaking. Do you think that some of that lack of preparing for transition 
is related to some of the misogyny that you've seen? Because I, I look at Dr. Barbara Ann Tears Theater. Uh-huh. You know, her daughter is now right. running that. I mean, that's a young right. energy. I look at what Avina did in Chicago, and mm-hmm. I think there's now. Um, you know, so I look at these companies that were led by women that are still being led mm-hmm. um, by by people who are of a younger generation. I, those are circumstantial I in think some ways, um, but I wonder if there's merit to there, the... There may be that. The other thing that I think is equally pressing is that you find you have that if you have been a founder of an organization that you've invested 30 plus years to, mm-hmm. you feel vest, vested in the organization through sweat equity, but you don't have a return on that in regards to a pension. And so you can't retire. That's the truth. So you find yourself in a situation where the day, the job you do day by day, the check you get every week is really all you can depend upon. So when you are in your later age, later years, and you're thinking about what's the next step. You're not able to think about They're that. not able to think about because you don't have the resources to do that. Mm-hmm. Like otherwise, also, you know, also, if you look at Regional, you know, the Lorts or even other small professional theaters, there's a usually a turnover in regards to the organizations from a founder. A founder may not be there for an extended mm-hmm. period of time. Again, that does not, that has not occurred as often. If the founder decides he or she is tired of doing the work or, or wants to find, wants to pursue something else, in many cases, that means the organization dies right. because it, there's no, there's nobody else to step up. Right. Um, and there aren't the resources to attract someone. Right. Uh, right. Could, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But here's the irony. Demo- the census tell us that demographically we're becoming a blacker, browner, more Asian country. Right. And that in 20 years we're going to be, there's not going to be any gr- ethnic group that's going to have a numerical superiority mm-hmm. over the rest. So if we are moving towards a world where there are more black people, more brown people, more Asian more um, native people in this co- that make up this country, more women in positions of authority. Doesn't it behoove us to have a cult- arts and cultural industry that reflects that, not by diversity and inclusion in existing in, in, in existing but white institutions, <laughs> but in diversity and inclusion by supporting the institutions that are committed to serving those organizations originally. Right. Like, I always wonder, why don't we have that diversity and inclusion funding going to a place like Penumbra to put more white right. people in their seats? Right. Why don't we have the, those same initiatives happening in the opposite direction? Right, right. Because on, by giving all the funding, predominantly giving that funding to white in, predominantly white institutions, you're perpetuating that through the lens of that institution yeah, instead of right. inviting a broader population right. into you know a, a black or an asian or hispanic focused theater and allowing their themselves to speak through their own lens right. instead of it being filtered through others and i am not quite sure why our funders because they're also predominantly white well and also because <laughs> like, the objective is not really to diversify programming or audiences it's it's to do audience development for organizations whose audiences are growing older and dying off. Mm-hmm. That's really what it's about. Mm-hmm. So you are a white institution. You're, it's it's really prevalent in the symphony orchestra or the opera mm-hmm. p- portion of the arts. And you see, yes, the people who used to love this and love it still are over 50 
white living in the suburbs. And if you want to be around in 20 years, you need more people of color in your audience. And also to be reaching the people who literally live down the street from you. Right, right. And <laughs> like so, there's an entire neighborhood right, around these institutions. Right. There's also, there's also an issue about donors, too. There is some wealth that exists in the black community, in the black upper middle class. And you want to capture those dollars for your institution as opposed to seeing them go to some black organization or some Hispanic organization or Asian organization. And so that's really, that to me appears to be what it's about because here's the thing that proved to me that all these efforts of inclusion were fruitless. You look at the data of hiring practices prior to 1990 and they're roughly... 78 to 85 percent, all art jobs going to whites, mm-hmm. with nine to 11 percent of going to blacks, and it breaks down, you know, for all the ethnic groups. So the overwhelming amount of jobs that exist are going to people, white, white, to pe- white people. And you're looking at this early ni- early 90s. We're looking at a late 80s, okay. early 90s. So that's really where the I'm, I targeted primarily before the Lila Wallace effort. Okay. Okay. And now statistically now, we're... And now statistically now, thanks to Richard Florida, he did a survey of the arts world, Mm -hmm. and it's now 78 to 80%. Overwhelmingly, all jobs go to whites. 11% roughly for African Americans. The numbers really haven't changed. Right, right. So that tells me that all this effort a diversity and inclusion that we've done since 1991 hasn't created anything in regards to jobs that have been, or, or opportunities have been more lucrative. The same thing goes for Broadway. Right. Bro, you know, mm-hmm. Broadway producers don't capture demographic information when they, with their employers, employees. They intentionally don't do that. Right. Well, then they'd have to report it. Then they'd have to report it and they'd have to realize what they got. So... A few years ago, a number of Asian American actors wanted to do wanted to find out what the circumstances were. What what was the options, the possible options for them to work every year, mm-hmm. and they and so they have a snapshot of the 2015-2016 Broadway season, which tells you that again, overwhelming jobs, seventy eight percent, right, right, <laughs> right, right, and that Asians fall below Hispanics in regards, and it's like two to four percent, something like that. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the reality, and they did that because they wanted to highlight the the disparity and opportunities for for that community. So to me, the only solution is funding organizations that serve those communities because they are guaranteed to hire those communities. Correct. You know that's not that's it's not rocket science. This is simple. If you want to if you want to change the, the the employment numbers for blacks, Hispanics, Asians, and Native people. And, then what you do is you in, you infuse those organizations with more right. money so they can hire more. Yeah, that's how you change the number. Well, that's exactly what we were saying earlier. Right. Is right. that like you don't funnel into the problem, right? You funnel into the solution. But you funnel into problem because you it is a you're you're basically sustaining white supremacy. Oh, so, the, but the problem is the priority. Right. The priority is to maintain these institutions no matter what. Because right. these are the anchor organizations. These are the ones that we see as most important. As opposed to creating new anchors. Right. What, do you, what would you like to propose for moving forward? I think African Americans are 
perfectly positioned to do a couple of things. One of them is to raise awareness about the viability of what we do and why we do it. Next year is the 400th anniversary of the first 28 Africans being brought to the colony in Jamestown that basically established the format of what we call chattel slavery, you know, plantations, you know, whatnot. We had other Africans that had been to America almost 100 years beforehand, but they came with the conquistadors and they were part of an oppressive force who in some cases got benefits at the end of the conquest. I'm talking about people who were... The foundation. Yeah, the foundation. Exactly, system. exactly. And so that's why 1619 is more important. We have a responsibility to acknowledge that and talk about the 400 years of our experience in this country and what we have done and how we have shaped it by our presence, by right. our culture, telling our story. And I think that the opportunity exists for us to use that to create a rallying cry mm-hmm. about why black theater matters. Right. That it's not something that can be done outside of us. It has to be done within us. Du Bois in 1926 in the Crisis Magazine says, black theater is by, for, right. about, and near. Yeah. It didn't say you could do it you know, in the white man's house and still call it black theater. But, and we see, that's what Tyler Perry did right. Right. right? He that went, is the one thing he did right. I, I, I'm not even going to get into right, that argument. Right. But, but what I will say is, by not having a home and by putting himself into communities, he got near. Right. right? And so right. When, when we look at what can work commercially and when we right. look at, the, I mean, that's, that's the component, right? Right, like, right. We it's, need to stop going into suburban whatever, to build a new... <laughs> right, right. The thing is, is that we can talk about being radicals about when we say what, we, what we're writing is revolutionary, but it's not revolutionary if it's filtered through a white director, through a white theater, whose audience is not, is not going to walk out on it. Mm-hmm. Because I can tell you there are things that we say in our plays, if we are speaking truth to power, that will alienate people who are comfortable with the current situation. I know that's true. And so you can't tell me that your voice is radical and revolutionary when your audience is overwhelmingly white. That's right. When the donors to the institution you are going to is overwhelmingly white. Mm -hmm. That is just not possible. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has, it never will. Frederick Douglass. There is no way we can sit up here and say that the experience that you have developing your work at a predominantly white institution is the same as developing it in a black institution where an overwhelmingly black audience is going to hear what you have to say and either agree with it or confront it with its authenticity. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing I think black theater needs to address going forward is we have to deal with our issue with LGBTQ people mm-hmm. because there is an energy in black gay voices trying to write their experience and being considered a part of the, of, of the family if we are allowing them to do work elsewhere because they find it more comfortable and accepting than being with us. That is, again, recipe for disaster. And, and that's where they're being invited. I mean, yes. I just saw C.A. Johnson's most recent piece you know, in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. Uh-huh. 
I, not to say that it wasn't a great production, right. but there should there it would be ideal, you know, if Sugar in Our Wounds, if Tantra's piece sure, right, right. was being developed at Congo Square. And, and I, <laughs> I, think, I know that's not possible, right. but you know. Right. But here's the thing: truth it could to that. be. It could be. But that means that we have to be less reliant on box office, which because what we have to realize is that the audience members we may lose by dealing with this subject and exposing this story is in benefit to a larger mission. That's that's really what's at the what we have to deal with. We have to address these places where we have been we have allowed ourselves to create established weaknesses, mm-hmm. and we, those weaknesses have been capitalized on. And the other part is we need to address a funding structure that has sustained a white supremacy in the arts. They can't talk about racial equity and not be more equitable equitable with their funding. I understand everybody's going to tell me that the the art, art pie is smaller than it was 20 years ago. Fine. My whole, for me, it's still going to be more than what I got before. I was going to say, and that, that may be the case. <laughs> right. But maybe that pie needs to be divided differently. Yes. And, you know, maybe we need to start looking at where, who, who's getting what slice. Right. I can't thank you enough for doing this work. No, no problem. Uh, it is necessary. And having those numbers, having those facts, are, are the, you know, theater facts happens every year. Right. But theater facts happens... For targeted institutions in, in that the, are self-selected, in, right, and I'm not pointing right, fingers right, at TCG. Right, right, People become right, members. Of the, right, I mean, institutions right. are; they are not members. But right. um, this this work is is vital uh, for our foundations to you know, and our corporate funders to really be able to know what their missions are and their right. goals are. Exactly, and that was the thing I was really going after. That, and that's what I got. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank no you problem. so much no for problem. for the work that you're doing and for taking the time to talk about. No, it. no problem. It's a pleasure. That was Gary Anderson, Artistic Director of Plowshares Theatre Company and author of Black Theatre Survey 2016-2017, a report on the health of black theatre in America. A copy of the report is available as a PDF at blacktheaterhistory.com. This is the Black Theatre History Podcast. I'm KV Sane. Our music is by Kaya Caterhurst from the album Nine Pin, which can be found on iTunes and wherever else fine music is sold. The Black Theatre History Podcast is produced with the support of Art 26201, which is dedicated to the promotion of public and community art in Buchanan, West Virginia, and works to promote the creative and inspirational opportunities in their community. To make a donation to the podcast, or to learn about sponsorship or episode commissions, reach out to us at blacktheaterhistory.com. And listeners, you also make this podcast possible. Make sure to subscribe to the Black Theatre History Podcast on iTunes. We're all in this together. We've got a lot more to learn. Thanks for listening. <laughs>